Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Social distancing has put a strain on many lives, but particularly on those of people with dementia. Gone is much of the human contact that helps soften the blow of the disease. And worse still, COVID-19 has put a stop to promising research into it. And for many people in lockdown, it's a time for self-improvement. Why not pick up that language you always wanted to learn? These days, there are plenty of techie tools that take out the tedium. You'll still have to put in the work, but it just might be fun. First up, though. Protests have been going on in Lebanon since late last year over its faltering economy. This week, they again turned violent. Last month, Lebanon defaulted on its debt for the first time ever, something that didn't happen even during 15 years of bloody civil war. A national shutdown prompted by the COVID pandemic has exacerbated the country's financial troubles. It's not just the government that's been the target of protesters. It's the banks, too. Citizens haven't been able to access their savings as the currency has been collapsing and prices soaring. This week, the government is trying to get a rescue plan together to send to the International Monetary Fund. But Lebanon is far from the only country asking for help. The pandemic has hit uh, emerging markets particularly hard. Uh, We've seen a number of countries already entering into various kinds of debt distress. Simon Cox is The Economist's emerging markets editor. For example, uh, Lebanon was in default uh, last month. Uh, Zambia has already started looking at ways to restructure its debts. Argentina missed a payment on its bonds last week. If it doesn't pay up by May 22nd, it will be in default for the ninth time in its history. Uh, We've also seen Ecuador restructure its debts, uh, agreeing with its creditors not to pay them for four months to give it more time and money to fight the pandemic. So all of these countries are in particularly acute trouble because of the pandemic. But the discussions around issuing debt are for pretty much every country in the world right now. What's what's different for emerging economies in, in terms of the debt loads they have and can handle? So we've seen a number of uh, rich country governments also taking on very large amounts of debt, uh, but they can sustain those debts very comfortably. Their borrowing costs they have to pay are remarkably low. Uh, And that's because these bonds are seen as safe haven assets. Investors are desperate to hold them at the moment. And that means that rich countries can afford to borrow very large sums uh, with which to fight the pandemic and compensate all of the losers. Now, some emerging markets are in the same category. We've seen a number of the stronger emerging economies also borrowing at very low rates. But there's another group of emerging markets that don't have that luxury. In particular, investors are reluctant to hold debt in their own currencies. They want to hold debt in dollars or euros only. And so these emerging economies find themselves in the position of selling bonds denominated in someone else's currency. Now, the problem with that is if your exchange rate plummets and we have seen exchange rates plummeting, those debts suddenly become much harder to hold, and uh, that difficulty becomes self-fulfilling. Investors get worried, they start demanding higher risk premiums to hold the debt, and that makes it even harder to sustain and makes the fears even more likely to be realised. And and what sort of 
headwinds are emerging economies facing that, that make the, the amount of debt they might ultimately need higher than in the rich world? So emerging economies in some cases don't have particularly high infection rates, but nonetheless they've been very economically vulnerable uh, to this virus. Of course, we've seen a dramatic drop in export earnings for all of the emerging economies that sell commodities, uh, particularly oil. Uh, we've seen tourism revenues plummet for countries like Thailand, uh, Egypt, uh, we've seen remittances from workers who uh, send money back home also plummeting. Uh, and then emerging economies, in some cases, have taken really quite stringent measures to try and control the pandemic. Uh, we've seen quite uh, strict lockdowns in places like Peru and India, Vietnam. And of course, those lockdowns have a tremendously uh, damaging effect on production. You, you say that emerging economies' responses to the pandemic have been different, but their their debt loads are different too, surely? Yes. So emerging economies entered into this crisis in different states of vulnerability. There are a number of emerging economies that have very high government debt, for example. Uh, there are others, uh, Turkey, for example, where the government debt is not particularly high, but companies have taken on large amounts of debt. Uh, the other distinguishing feature between them are countries where the problems are mostly internal. That is, they owe a lot of money to their own citizens and their own companies, um, and others where the money is owed uh, abroad. But it's not as if emerging markets have a whole lot of option here. They still need to borrow as, as pretty much every country in the world does. So emerging markets um, face the same fiscal needs that every country fighting this pandemic faces. They need to increase health expenditures. Their tax revenues are going to drop. Uh, and in addition, they have what you might call external financing needs. That is, they need to earn dollars to buy their imports and to service their existing debt. And it's those external financing needs that I think are of particular concern to organisations like the International Monetary Fund, uh, which gets called upon to fill any gap when a country runs short of dollars. Now, one way to give emerging economies more hard currency to play with is to stop collecting it from them. So we've already seen an initiative by the G20 group of governments. They've said they will uh, delay collecting payment on their loans to poor countries. Uh, they'll stop collecting them for the rest of the year, and that should give emerging economies a bit more breathing space. But really, that's only of help to the poorest countries that take out a lot of debt from foreign governments. Uh, the more middle-income and larger emerging economies tend to borrow from private creditors instead. They sell bonds or they take out bank loans. And so there's some calls that this sort of debt standstill should be extended to the private sector as well. Uh, but that's a whole order more complicated. And, and why is that? Why is that any different? For one thing, you're not just talking about 20 governments. You're talking about thousands of different creditors, some bondholders, some big pension funds, some individual retail investors. A lot of uh, vulnerable sovereign governments aren't particularly transparent about who they borrow from. There may be loans that they haven't disclosed and they're reluctant to disclose. If you start asking for debt relief from some creditors, um, but not others, uh, those creditors get upset. They feel that other creditors are free-riding on their sacrifice. So in, in the absence of, of full knowledge of who all the creditors are, rather than working out individual deals, is there some, is some way that governments can just say in some blanket way, we're just going to have to stop paying for a period? Sure. And some people have actually proposed exactly that. And they feel that you know, if enough countries do it, then some of the stigma is erased. Um, and clearly, this is an event that's outside of any of these countries' control. So they have a good excuse, as it were. But this kind of uh, involuntary debt standstill is hugely controversial. 
And there's probably a reasonable fear in some quarters that this would set back the progress that some emerging economies have made in winning the trust of creditors. And so it might hurt them in the long run. So all told, do you think that the pandemic will essentially reshuffle the, the league table of emerging markets in terms of their, their economic stability and, and strength? Or is it the, the, the case that the, the ones best prepared now will be the ones who come out best in the end? It does seem to me that the gap between the stronger emerging economies and the weaker ones is going to be exacerbated by this crisis. Some emerging economies are almost uh, taking advantage of the fact that nervous investors are looking for safe haven assets and they're being able to borrow at quite low yields. And then obviously you'll have economies who are going to be pushed into default and long-term distress, both by the financial panic and by the damage the uh, disease is doing to their underlying economies. Uh, And then you have economies that seem to be doing okay not that long ago, but are really struggling now. Uh, I think particularly of India, where the lockdown has been very strict and some financial troubles that have been building for a while have really uh, blown up to the surface. So you might find some economies in the mid-table dropping further down. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. There isn't a single facet of life almost anywhere on the planet that has not been affected, upended, by the COVID-19 pandemic. Things are getting pretty ugly. Investors are running away from assets they see as risky. There is the risk that skepticism and fear and mistrust kind of snowballs into something that becomes as big of a problem in the fight against COVID as COVID itself. For the latest on the pandemic and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The coronavirus pandemic is nightmarish for many, but in particular for those living with dementia and those caring for them. Every day they are having to say to somebody, I'm really sorry you can't go out. There's a pandemic, there's this virus which is killing people. You have to stay at home. And that is absolutely terrifying. Helen Payton is a dementia support worker at Alzheimer's Society, a leading British dementia charity. I tend to use dementia as the umbrella term for a condition which affects the brain. It describes a group of symptoms that are associated with the ongoing decline of brain function. In the early stages, things that can be affected are your short-term memory. There can be struggles with fairly familiar daily tasks, or you might have word-finding difficulties. And then as the dementia progresses, you may find that you're not able to prepare a meal, use a bus, use a telephone. And then unfortunately, and this isn't the same for everybody, but towards the later stages, things that can be affected are your mobility. Your ability to speak can be quite profoundly affected. As a support worker, Helen has hands-on experience of the challenges facing those with dementia and their carers as the coronavirus has spread and social distancing measures have been implemented. I spoke to a lady the other day who is caring for her husband who has dementia. He's very much used to going out, playing golf, meeting up with somebody to have lunch and go out for a coffee. And they're no longer able to do these things. And she was in tears on the phone to me because he's not getting that social stimulation. He has lost a significant amount of everyday skills. And I think for carers, the main thing that is coming through at the moment is what will happen to my loved one if I catch COVID-19? If I go into hospital, what will happen to them? 
and it's about reassuring them that things will be put in place, that their loved one will be cared for. While there are few substitutes for human contact, technology might be able to help in some cases. Experiments are being made in various parts of the world with substituting technological methods for people. Simon Long is our deputy digital editor. For example, in Japan, they make quite a lot of use of robots just to play games, have basic conversations, or even just to be a cuddly toy. In Singapore, there are sensors fitted in some public housing apartments of the vulnerable elderly so that, for example, if a tap in a wash basin isn't used for a long time, there will be an alert to neighbours or or relatives who could step in. And there are apps on phones you can use if you're alert enough to use your phone where you could, for example, scan a, a code on the kettle if you can no longer remember what a kettle is for and it will explain how you can use it to boil water. But all of these are firstly still at quite early stages of experimentation and not widely rolled out and secondly very poor substitutes for the help and care and love that people can give and what's really cruel about this lockdown for many people with dementia is that that contact with the people who know and love them is lost. Well, what about the prospect that in the absence of that human contact, that some of those be moved into care homes where there is greater chance for that human contact? You're quite right. Of course, an awful lot of people with dementia are in care homes because they can't look after themselves. However, that's not really an option for many people just at the moment because many care homes are self-isolating. I mean, some studies suggest that half the deaths from coronavirus during this pandemic in some European countries and possibly in the US as well, have been in care homes. So both are the care homes very reluctant, understandably, to risk further infection by letting new people in. But also the people who care for people with dementia are very reluctant to see them go either into hospital or in a care home for fear of what might happen to them there. And beyond the challenges related to care, I wonder how the pandemic is affecting the the broader fight against dementia. Is it, like a lot of other scientific research, very much on hold? Yeah, that's a very good point, Jason. A lot of research has stopped. A very pioneering study into lifestyle changes that was rolled out in Finland a few years ago and really was the most definitive demonstration of how lifestyle changes can reduce the risk of dementia and can slow down the speed at which it progresses. That was being rolled out across the world, but all that research has stopped because of the difficulty of conducting research in a a period of social lockdown. And perhaps most significantly for many people, there's also been a delay uh, to the approval process for a pioneering drug for Alzheimer's called aducanumab, which the drug company Biogen was hoping to get approved by the American authorities this year. Many people had severe doubts about how much good that drug would do to more than a minority of Alzheimer's sufferers, but there is so little hope in this area that many people were clinging to it. And so do you think this is just a a kind of momentary pause then in in terms of things that will help people with dementia or, or push dementia research, or is this going to be a source of lasting change? For people who work in this field, I think that is perhaps one of the most depressing aspects of all this, is the sense that they were making progress, that because dementia is such a growing problem worldwide, it was beginning to be accepted as a growing emergency, that as the world ages in population, the number of people with dementia is going to increase from about 50 million today worldwide to maybe 150 million by 2050. And it was beginning to be accepted that this was a potential looming disaster that societies needed to do something about. Having for many years 
treated dementia either as just a natural part of ageing or as something that would be best not thought about at all. So those who work in this field feel that people with dementia were marginalised before the crisis, have been marginalised during it, and they fear that when it's over, they will be even more marginalised than ever. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. For a wide-ranging look at a fast-changing world, subscribe to The Economist. To get 12 issues for $12 or £12, just go to economist.com slash radio offer. Lockdowns across the world have nudged lots of people into learning something new. Whether it's mastering the viola or baking the perfect sourdough, self-improvement takes many different forms. And technology has made it easier to pick up some skills without leaving the house. So language learning is as important as it ever was, but a lot of people might think that the sort of consummate social skill is not a good thing to learn while they're at home. Lane Green writes Johnson, The Economist's column on language. But I think there are some real advantages to trying to learn a language in lockdown and a few tips and tricks from old methods as well as from new technology that can make it a lot easier and a lot more fun. I think a lot of people in the past have not found language learning all that fun. They find it quite repetitive. In the old days, you might have just a book to learn from, or you'd have a teacher who wasn't necessarily a native speaker, maybe didn't even really speak the language that well themselves. What technology there was consisted of things like cassettes, where you just repeated the same thing over and over. Some decades ago, I studied French that way with uh, cassettes in a program that were designed for American diplomats, and it was just incredibly repetitive. Je sais qu'il y en a un au coin de la rue. Près de chez vous. Je sais qu'il y en a un près de chez vous. Nous savons. Nous savons qu'il y en a un près de chez vous. It was quite effective in its way, but it was also incredibly dull, and it didn't go very quickly. And you think things are, are better now simply for technological reasons? Well, there's a lot of technology that can help. Technology makes it a lot more fun. Uh, here I should mention something like Duolingo, which a lot of people will have heard of, which sort of gamifies the language learning process. And so a lot of little kids even enjoy poking at the screen. You'll get a little more content out of something like Babbel, which does a little more explicit explanation of grammar. But one shortcoming of the apps is that people can mistake, I think, working on the app with actually learning the language itself. I like to compare it to fitness, where if you're sitting there poking at your phone, you're not actually doing the thing that you're trying to learn how to do. So you need to get away from the phone and spend as much time actually speaking as humanly possible. But I guess the question is, it might be a little more fun, it might be a little more modern perhaps, but does it make learning a language actually easier, do you think? Well, I certainly think it takes a bit of the drudgery element out. For example, just practicing verb conjugations or noun declensions, that kind of thing is never a lot of fun. And the sort of flashy screen can give you a sense that you're making progress and a sense of sort of enjoyment out of it. So, so are you putting this into practice yourself? Are you using lockdown time to, to learn a language? As a matter of fact, I am. I'm actually brushing up some Italian. I taught myself the basics of the grammar and so forth a long time ago, but now I'm trying to get it up to an intermediate level. One trick is just to walk around speaking the language as much as you can while you're in your kitchen cooking or cleaning. Just say what you're doing. And if you don't know the word, don't be afraid of just using the English word in that space. But if you have a smart speaker, you can just wake your smart speaker and say, how do you say apple in Italian? And the smart speakers are all very good at answering those questions now. Another thing I like to do is use the online platforms to actually find a native speaker tutor. One advantage of lockdown is that a lot of these tutors are home and, and available, and many of them are quite good. Either a formal instruction, which is a little more expensive, but still pretty cheap, or just 
informal conversation practice. And this is what I like the most. You can do the grammar on your app, but now you want to put it into practice and you get someone who is patient, who can correct your mistakes. But these folks are also fun and they're enjoying what they're doing. And you have a low stakes conversation, practicing exactly what you're trying to do, which is real live conversation. Well, Lane, since you're polishing your Italian, I'll say, è stato un gran piacere, ti ringrazio. Anche per me, Jason. Grazie. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. 